0: another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scotland,
1: And I'm Sarah Britnica.
0: So Sarah, we've had a a slew of uh, new economic data recently. Uh, Obviously last week, the Bank of Canada raising the interest rate another quarter percentage of a point. To 5%, I think the highest yeah. level in something like 20, 20 Two. some years, 22 years, thank you. Uh, inflation data from the US last week coming in at 3%. uh it's lower been a fire than hose expected. of inflation data. Yeah, we've got a ton of numbers and data and news to unpack here. So I thought it was time that we do sort of a, a check in on where we're at in a macroeconomic sense. Unfortunately, we have a really outstanding guest on to walk us through all of that, explain what it all means, and what may be happening next. Brett House is with us. He's a professor of professional practice and economics at Columbia Business School and a fellow at the Public Policy Forum, Monk School, and Massey College. Brett, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to be on with you. So I want to start by looking at the Bank of Canada's uh, rate decision last week. Obviously, we saw another quarter percentage point hike. What was, in your view, behind this
2: decision? Well, it's important to remember that that decision was widely anticipated by analysts and forecasters in the week leading up to it. But six months beforehand, or even as late as three months beforehand, it was very much in doubt. And in fact, uh, many forecasters were anticipating that the bank would be on hold through the summer and beginning to cut rates by the end of the year. That was predicated on a view that, Based on past episodes of rate increases, we would see a mild recession developing this year, uh, probably by the beginning of the second half. And that would be further um, uh, underpinned by a slowing growth that is more or less inevitable after two years of really explosive expansion as the Canadian from the shutdowns of 2020. Uh, The bank was really uh, clear in articulating what it saw as a much stronger than expected Canadian economy, one where underlying price pressures appear to be more persistent than anticipated. And what it means when it talks about underlying price pressures are core parts of the Canadian consumption basket that are not as volatile as food and fuel, and that form the real center of the price estimation that the bank, uh, every month as it looks at its uh, interest rate decision, Um, that core underlying inflation is still running at somewhere between three and four percent. And that's decently north of the two percent target that the bank has laid out for it. And it's accompanied by inflation expectations amongst businesses and households Uh, that also remain persistently above the 2% target. And so the bank is trying to respond to both the reality of underlying inflation pressures that remain too high against its mandate and those expectations. And those expectations are important because so long as those expectations remain above 2%, it implies that businesses will continue to implement price increases at more than 2%, and workers will be looking for wage settlements uh, that are well in excess of two percent. And so the bank has two jobs right now: managing those expectations down toward its target, and getting actual realized expectation, realized inflation closer to that target as well. Right. So I mean,
0: I think you raise an interesting point there about how the demand and uh, inflation, some of these core measures, has been more resilient than. Maybe people would have expected, and then you know, a couple of weeks ago we had new jobs figures from last month. I think sixty thousand new jobs. Uh, tech stocks are on the way back up again after a brief a brief dip. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that you would expect to see as rates have increased so quickly don't seem to be happening, or at least are not happening at the pace that you would expect based on history. What should we take away from that? Like, Are these interest rate hikes not really doing their job? Why have they not been as effective in crushing that demand uh, as we might have expected?
2: Well, I think it's important to remember that the point of the interest rate hikes isn't to crush demand or to hurt people, as some folks Mm. have asserted recently. they really are designed to try to get inflation back down toward that 2% mandate. And the hope amongst the banks, officials, and economists more generally, is that we'll achieve that with the minimum pain necessary uh, to the Canadian economy, to households, businesses, and workers. And uh, the debate you know, a couple of years ago was whether inflation was going to be a transitory or a temporary phenomenon or whether it would be long-lasting and here to stay. I think it, the, the numbers we're seeing now imply that neither side was entirely right. Uh, hmm. The critics who said the Bank of Canada was far too slow to act and that there was a massive inflationary bulge forming I don't think have been entirely uh, borne out as correct because inflation has come down markedly from 8.1% at its peak in mid-2022 to 3.4% year-on-year in May. Now, further declines are going to be tough because as you compare uh, price levels with a year ago and we start dropping out some of those big jumps that we had in 2021 and 2022, Further declines in year-on-year measures get tougher and tougher uh, to bring forward. And so that's where we need to look at the rolling or run rate of underlying core inflation, Way of the bank, because it's staying between 3 and 4%. And so now the question is one of fine-tuning, one of how many rate increases does it take to align supply and demand close enough to bring that underlying price pressure down. How much uh, does it take to dampen parts of the economy that are needed to be a little cooler to compensate for what many economists have observed are global price pressures on food Mm. and fuel. Most of those pressures are coming from international markets. They're not coming from phenomena that the interest rate hikes can directly affect. And so the point of the interest rate hikes is in some ways an offsetting measure for those international markets. Uh, Some have critiqued the bank saying, oh, you're raising rates in the midst of a phenomenon that you can't control. Stop raising rates. Uh, This is, in fact, an offsetting move. You're raising rates to dampen demand for things that it can control and in parts of the economy that it can affect. And it's worth remembering that food prices, and fuel prices flow through eventually to every part of the economy. They're two of the most essential parts of our consumption basket. Now, I mentioned that debate earlier between team transitory and team hair on fire, let's call them, around inflation. (laughs) Now, the team hair on fire uh, clearly uh, was a little too worked up because inflation's come down far faster than they expected. Uh, but for Team Transitory, they haven't been fully uh, vindicated either, because inflation is now stalling around 3 to 4% in that core measure, and that is taking extra work to get it down and to get those inflation expectations down. And part of what you're seeing from the Bank of Canada is not just that policy move of these rate hikes in June and July, uh, to address that core measure, but to address those expectations too. And they're talking very tough. You know, they're making it clear with this last statement around the July decision that they're not done, that future meetings remain live for further hikes. And that communication is intentional because that is designed precisely to address those expectations, to try to dampen. Uh, what people anticipate on the inflationary front to make it clear the bank will do whatever it takes to get back to its 2% target. And if you see those expectations come down, that does some of the bank's job for it. And it won't have Hmm. to raise rates further either again or as much as it would otherwise have to do. So the actual policy rate and communication are two tools the bank is using here.
1: When looking at these underlying price pressures that are keeping core inflation higher than than target, I'm wondering if we could unpack that a little bit. What are the specific measures within, you know, what goes into core inflation that the Bank of Canada is is looking at to, to cool?
2: Well, the the core inflation measures that the bank uses are multi-part at present. They have three different calculations of core inflation. Uh, Some of which are fixed and simply exclude food and fuel, which are traditionally the ones that we take out of the core because they are very volatile and affected by global markets. Uh, They also have a couple measures where they try to exclude things that are temporarily volatile, Uh, you know, as a result of particular phenomena uh, like you know, the strike in the ports on the west coast of Canada or other specific supply chain issues. Uh, They're trying to remove outliers that might be temporarily causing a spike in prices but are likely to revert back to something a little more constant uh, in their measure of what CORE is doing. And so they look at these three different measures. Uh, We often take an average of them to try to understand what is happening in the CORE. And outside of food and fuel, uh, some of the things that are driving core inflation are housing costs uh, and services costs. Because at the beginning of the pandemic, during the shutdown and then through uh, some of the extended period when people were working from home, you saw a real shift in consumption toward goods as people tried to make their homes a more effective place to work or study or yet simply survive with. Um, As things have reopened, you've seen a decided shift in consumption towards services as people have wanted to get out of the house, travel, go to cultural and sporting events, eat out in restaurants again. And so some of the biggest drivers of inflation now are coming from the services side of the economy.
1: I want to talk a little bit about some of the calculations that we're we're using because you mentioned that we've gotten more specific as time has gone on. I think in March 2022 we were talking about just the CPI then we moved on to core and then we moved on to you know core trim and these more kind of short-term measures that are looking at these temporarily volatile prices. I'm wondering what is the consensus for what is the most important piece of data to look at? Is it this CPI um, or sorry, is it the, this kind of CPI trim that takes away those temporary measures? Um, and, and how is the way that we're going to keep measuring inflation maybe going to shift in the coming months?
2: Well, I think all of the major measures that are highlighted by the Bank of Canada are important to our understanding of what is happening uh, to the Canadian economy, and that correspondence between supply and demand that we're trying to bring into balance Uh, Headline inflation has to be part of our discussion always because uh, total inflation is what drives the cost of living uh, for Canadian households and for operations for Canadian businesses to some extent as an extension of that CPI basket. Uh, You know, it can be all well and good to say, oh, we're excluding food and fuel, uh, for instance, because they're heavily volatile, but, you know, for most of us, we don't get to exclude food and fuel from our consumption. So, now, flight <laughs> inflation is always going to be part of this conversation, and it has to be because it is a realistic reflection of what a typical Canadian household has to consume on a monthly basis. It's important to underscore that no one sees their lives entirely reflected by that consumption basket. You'll hear people talking about how inflation, you know, in the official statistics, isn't capturing their experience because, for instance, they're young parents and childcare costs run much higher than uh, the headline inflation rate. Or you'll see folks talking about uh, educational tuition, which typically, for the last decade or so, has run. Uh, at inflationary price increases much higher than headline inflation and say, well, CPI doesn't reflect me, so it's broken. Uh, I think all these critiques are really empty and raw. Um, CPI as a representative basket of costs was never meant to represent any one Canadian's experience or any household's experience. It's meant to be an aggregate. And if you happen to see your experience perfectly reflected in the CPI basket, well, you are likely one of a very small handful of people who happen to be incredibly average. Uh, but with all averages, you have <laughs> wide tails and distributions on either side of uh, that mean, or uh, in some cases, if we chose a median, uh, to represent parts of that basket. Uh, the fact that anyone person doesn't see themselves reflected there is not a reason to throw out uh, the CPI basket with the inflationary bathwater. Um, you need to keep headline inflation in mind as well because the Bank of Canada's mandate is defined in terms of headline inflation. The 2% year-on-year inflation mandate or objective that is set for them as one of the second major banks in the world that adopted inflation targeting is, uh, is tied to that headline, cor- headline measure. Uh, But when we're looking at inflection points, when we're looking at changes in the economy where things are a little uncertain and uh, it's not clear, you know, whether things are going up or down, uh, looking at those measures of core inflation is critical because it does uh, remove some of the noise and try to identify what underlying trends are doing in the directions that they're moving. And I don't think there's any one of the three uh, core measures that we should privilege. I I think looking at all of them at different points in time are going to be instructive, and it is useful taking a composite of them.
1: One quick hypothetical uh, question here before we move on. So if housing and services costs are driving inflation right now, if those two costs were to get under control, would hypothetically the Bank of Canada lay off and stop raising interest rates
2: Well it would certainly help uh, but you know much still depends on what some of those global markets are doing in food and fuel you know or, or reignition of uh, tensions in the Persian Gulf or other parts of the world that blocked uh, oil exports would have a big impact on us uh, if grain shipments out of Ukraine, Uh, become uh, clogged or stopped again because of the conflict. That will have a big impact on global food prices. The continuing uh, trade conflict between the United States and China, which is forcing uh, reshoring or different shoring of production chains, and movement to new locations, is certainly adding to costs. Uh, The ongoing tariffs that the U.S. is charging on many Chinese uh, products is also adding to costs, both on the goods and services side in terms of the way that they contribute uh, to the overall cost of production. So, you know, there are a lot of factors at work here. And when you look at uh, the housing situation in Canada, this has been a multi-decades problem in the making. And it is very hard for me to conjure a situation where uh, housing costs come under control and move back to affordable levels uh, almost no matter how high interest rates get pushed uh, and of course mm. you know that, that that's a little facetious there would be some level where uh, you know the housing market would fully break uh, but we have a persistent supply and demand imbalance uh, that has become only more extreme uh, recently mm. I had a look at um, the ratio of population growth, so additions from both immigration and uh, people born in Canada, and uh, housing starts and uh, completions. And that ratio is at the lowest it's been in 40 years, and it's going lower with the immigration numbers uh, that we're increasing right now. And so rather than uh, housing getting better, it's likely just going to get more expensive why don't we stay on that for a minute here because
0: i'm curious about the contribution of uh, shelter costs and mortgage interest costs to the measures of inflation that we're we're seeing right now you know i think there was some someone pulled out shelter costs from the last round of inflation and it was like significantly lower um when that's removed from that measure And I think some people look at that and they say, okay, we're raising rates, which is raising mortgage interest payments, which is then pushing inflation up. And then the bank is looking at that and saying, oh, inflation is still high. We have to raise rates more. I assume that that can't be what's actually going on, but it it does sort of appear that way sometimes. Can you talk about how the bank manages that seeming tension?
2: Well, Governor Macklem addressed the question directly in the press conference after the July decision, where he noted that you know, inflation, uh, headline inflation at 3.4% would be down around 2.5% if you mm. took out the impact of increases in shelter costs in part related to uh, the interest rate increases on variable rate mortgages. Uh, but, you know, the fact is uh, mortgage costs are not the only contribution to those elevated shelter costs, that persistent 40-year supply deficit, the fact that we haven't built rental housing in a major way in decades, uh, the fact that you know those mortgage costs are pushing people out of the purchase market and into the rental market, which is now incredibly tight in many large yep. Canadian cities, and that additional boost from immigration, uh, all mean that is a little facetious to say just you know pull that out and inflation's only at 2.5 percent uh you know the the project is done uh just like food and fuel you know we can take them out but it doesn't lower the cost of living and increases in the cost of living for canadians and it's important to remember the reason why we take food and fuel out of the CPI basket to create core, or we take other volatile things out on a periodic basis in the other core measures the bank has, isn't because we think they're unimportant. It's because we think that they are volatile and they move around a lot. And we are trying to get a measure of where the trend in price increases is going. It's not to discount uh, their relevance for the spending and the costs faced by Canadians, it's to determine, are the totality of price pressures going up or down at any given time? Okay. And
0: broadening out a little bit, I did want to talk about that 2% inflation target. Uh, I'm just wondering, what is it about 2% that makes that the optimal
2: target for inflation? Why not one or why not three? It's a great question, Uh, and you might wonder, why not zero? If inflation is such a bad thing, uh, (laughs) why don't we wipe it out altogether? Isn't uh, less of a bad thing a good thing? Uh, The reason we don't put inflation targets at zero uh, can be summed up with a little thought experiment. Inflation or price increases uh, are meant to be a reflection of uh, productivity and growth. In the economy. You can charge more for a good or a service if you're actually providing more value without it being inflationary. If you had an inflation target at zero, it would mean at any given time there would be some firms that are uh, producing and growing with greater productivity and there would be some that are not, that are actually seeing their productivity decreasing. Wages are meant to reward the value of uh, labor and the output that it produces. For the companies that are producing you know, with positive productivity gains, they would be able to raise nominal wages. Uh, if we're going to achieve a 0% inflation target, that would imply that firms that are not seeing productivity gains, that are seeing erosions in productivity, would have to actually reduce wages. Uh, to their workers and it is never the case that anyone wants to see a reduction in their pay packet uh, They might you know grumble but settle for a very small increase uh, but it is extremely hard for firms to bring in uh, a reduction as it should be you know because often um, uh, the productivity of people's work isn't fully in their, Hands It depends on their management, on the capital structure, on the entire market mm-hmm. that a firm is engaged in. And so we put the inflation target at 2% so that firms that are doing well can reward uh, with wage increases higher than that. And firms that are doing poorly can still provide a small nominal increase without uh, keeping wages just at zero increase or even Reducing them, which we know firms would be reluctant to do, which would mean zero would be an almost impossible target to reach. It's unrealistic. So two percent is positive as a more realistic target. Uh, why not three or one? Well, one, you know, would be pretty close to zero. We're trying to leave a bit of margin in between uh, for firms, right? At least a small wage increase, even when you know they're not uh, recording productivity gains. Why not three or four or five? Well, it's that expectations issue that if you have inflation a bit higher, that people have trouble reading where it's going to be. They're going to continually militate for price increases and wage increases that are three, four or five percent to insulate themselves against inflation. And that'll bake in a bit of a, a, a circle that keeps inflation higher than we would otherwise want it to be. But you know, I should recognize there's some central banks in the world that have set three percent as their target. There are some that have a few that have set uh, targets even higher than that. But these are banks in central banks in countries that are typically coming out of more recent episodes of extremely high inflation, hyperinflation, in the double digits or even triple digits in some cases. Is it the target kind of a psychological
0: thing then? In some ways, like we say, you know, I understand on the lower below two, why that, you know, the reasons you outlined make sense to me. But is it, you know, once you get up to three and four, people start noticing it more than they would at two. And so those
2: expectations become baked in. Yeah. Uh, Inflation targeting has a strong psychological component to it. And that's why I mentioned earlier, the bank has two tools at its disposal, two major tools. One is the actual policy rate that it sets, the interest rate, The other is its communication, where it can talk tough or it can talk easy. If it talks tough, that generally is meant to bring expectations of inflation down. And if those expectations are contained, that self-fulfilling prophecy of inflation is less likely to come about. And a virtuous byproduct of that is that you don't have to raise rates as high as you might otherwise.
1: I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the relationship with the U.S. when it comes to inflation, particularly particularly when it comes to whether we should be paying attention to what the Fed is doing. Um, because when we first started seeing rate increases here in Canada, we kept hearing that it was really important to keep pace with the Fed just to maintain strength in the currency. But now we're seeing. Canadian mortgage holders, which don't have access to like these 30 year fixed rates that you see in the US are seeing their payments jump by, you know, 30, 40, 50% higher and contributing to some of those mortgage interest costs that we're seeing. So in this new environment, has the way that we looked at what the Fed is is doing or, or how the US is tackling inflation more broadly still very much a consideration when it comes to what we're doing here, or has that changed at all?
2: Well, Sarah, you provide some great context there uh, in the course of asking that question. Canada and U.S. do have very different economies on the household lending side. Uh, you know, Generally, Canadians don't lock in their mortgage rates for more than five years, whereas it is commonplace uh, for Americans to be able to lock in a fixed rate for 30 years. That's an incredible contrast. It's an incredible difference in the balance of where risks are in these two economies. In the United States, almost all the risk of rate increases is shoved onto banks. uh, Whereas in Canada, uh, those risks are shared a little more equally between borrowers and lenders. Uh, It means that up to this point, we thought Canada was a much more interest rate sensitive economy than the United States and that we should see growth, consumer demand, employment, and housing demand all affected much more quickly and substantially by rate increases, particularly those that have been so quick as we've seen uh, over the last year and a half. And in fact, uh, it is a little bit of a conundrum that we haven't seen a bigger response to them or a proportionately bigger response in Canada than the US. Some of that may be a byproduct of the fact that Canada provided uh, more substantial and more widely available pandemic supports to businesses and households uh, that allowed uh, even some low-income households to build up a bit of savings during the pandemic. Much of that, what we call excess or larger-than-usual savings mountain has been spent down. Uh, but it does mean that the impact of those interest rates have been cushioned uh, to this point. Uh, We see, you know, these surveys that come out from MNP, a bankruptcy, uh, uh, that they've published for years and years and years, and almost habitually, no matter what part of the economic cycle we're in, uh, they tend to say that, you know, a large proportion of Canadians feel they can't keep up with their bills and they're only a couple hundred dollars a month away from... Uh, falling into the red. Uh, I don't take those surveys very seriously, not because I discount the pain that Canadian households are feeling, uh, but because I don't think they're showing what MNP says they show. I think what they are saying is no one likes interest rate increases uh, and everyone would rather they didn't happen. Uh, But the assessment that You know, 40% of Canadian households are on the edge of uh, bankruptcy or being unable to meet their bills is a step too far. If we look at mortgage delinquency rates in Canada, they've actually trended lower uh, through the last few years. They remained flat through the 2008 global financial crisis. Uh, They haven't really budged a bit. They've only tended to improve over time. Canadians uh, prioritize paying their mortgages in the United States. Uh, people tend to prioritize paying their car payments uh, because in (laughs) many cases, public transport is so bad. Not that it's terrific in Canada, Uh, but if you lose access to a car, you lose access to your job and to making money at all. Uh, So you see delinquency rates on houses go up uh, a lot, on mortgages go up a lot quicker uh, in the U.S. when they don't budge here. Um, And you see um, those those responses come a lot later to car payments. What has been a little different uh, this time around in the U.S. is you haven't seen either of those uh, move quite as much as we would have expected by this point in the cycle. So the U.S. is perhaps not as interest rate sensitive as we previously thought. So coming back to your question, uh, that's that's a lot of background, Um, but you know, you're you focusing in on the extent to which the Bank of Canada has to remain in step with movements by the Fed. And we normally think that the Bank of Canada has to shadow the Fed relatively closely because of the potential impact on currency. If we fall behind on rate increases compared with the Fed and open up a gap of more than three quarters of a point or a full point, Uh, the impact on the Canadian dollar could be significant because Canada becomes a less attractive place than for foreign investors to put money into our government bonds and corporate credit. Uh, That reduces demand for the Canadian dollar as those inflows decrease. If the Canadian dollar falls against the US dollar, uh, the currency of our biggest trading partner, it implies that the cost of goods we import from the United States but from the entire world because most trade is denominated in U.S. dollars is going to go up. And so that adds to the inflationary challenge of the Bank of Canada. We were talking earlier about what feels like a bit of a tautology where interest rates go up, it increases shelter costs, and rather than dampening inflation, it it adds to some of the inflationary basket. In the same way, if we don't keep up with the Fed and the Canadian dollar gets slammed, Uh, that engenders the need for further rate increases to catch up.
1: So is there like a looming risk as the households that, for instance, aren't seeing their mortgage payments go up in the U.S., as they're kind of sitting on extra discretionary income relative to to us? Does that pose any long-term risks in terms of how long economists think that the Fed should should be expected to keep? hiking to keep inflation down?
2: Well, yeah, we are seeing some dampening in some of the key economic indicators, the labor market, inflation, uh, consumer demand uh, that the Fed is watching. And so you know, we are getting close to the end of the hiking cycle in the U.S. as well. Uh, the question is, given what might be a lower degree of interest rate sensitivity in the U.S., as you highlighted, because of the mortgage market. The question is whether the Fed will need to keep going further than the Bank of Canada needs to do on purely domestic grounds, and that the Bank of Canada is forced to raise rates one or two more times than it would otherwise do to protect the Canadian dollar and prevent that pass-through of uh, prices from imported goods pushing up our inflation rate, uh, that's that's always a risk. The Bank of Canada will never say that it's taking that into consideration because it would be antithetical to its inflation mandate to say that it's also trying to target uh, a particular exchange rate for the Canadian dollar. Um, mm-hmm. And in fact, there's something we call the trilemma in uh, macroeconomics, which is you a know, play on dilemma, but it's a three-piece uh, situation where you can't have your cake and eat it too, which I'll concede is a crazy phrase. I mean, why have cake if you're not going to eat it? But in in the economic sense, uh, Robert Mundell, who is a Canadian economist uh, who won the Nobel Prize uh, for his work on international economics, articulated the impossibility of having a fixed exchange rate or a targeted exchange rate full control over monetary policy and deciding what your interest rate wanted to be, and open capital flows. You can have two of these three things, but you can't have all three at once. And let me you know, do a few of the permutations on it to explain. So say you're a country like the United Kingdom in the early 90s that wanted to enter the Eurozone and pin the pound to a basket of other European currencies as a kind of training period To enter the euro. You peg it at some number. And because the city of London is one of the biggest financial markets in the world, it accounts for some 10 to 12% of British GDP, you have very open capital flows in and out of the country. But because of those open capital flows, money can flow in and it can flow out. And you need to put your interest rate, as the Bank of England at a level that will keep the pound consistent with the parity that's been established with these other European currencies. You've got a problem because the north of England and Scotland has incredibly high unemployment and relatively slow growth. So if you push interest rates up to the level required to keep the pound at its parity with the rest of Europe, you're gonna crush big parts of your economy. And if you're a government, That at that time, the Bank of England was not entirely dependent. That government is going to be held responsible for those interest rates crushing the economy. You've got a dilemma. You know you're coming back to the voters and you are going to get spanked. So George Soros, the famous hedge fund investor, bet that if a British government had to choose between staying in the Eurozone and raising rates uh, or lowering rates in order to uh, stimulate parts of the economy that are doing badly, it would give up staying in the Eurozone, lower rates, and that parity would be broken. That's how he made a billion dollars in a day with a single trade. Um, In a similar fashion, you know, we in Canada have incredibly open capital markets. We have an independent monetary policy. We set interest rates in order to reflect The level of activity in our country and our inflation target, uh, that means we can't hold the exchange rate at a particular level. Uh, And it means if we want to try to prevent the Canadian dollar from declining and importing inflation, we have to move in step with the Fed, not lockstep, but reasonably consistently. So I I want to look at
0: the bigger global picture a little bit. Um, And you sort of alluded to some of these factors earlier that may suggest that we're entering a period where inflation is more persistent, like these trade fights, um, more supply shocks driven by climate, perhaps decoupling in some sense from from China. Um, I guess the first part of the question is, do you think that we are entering a more inflationary period because of these global factors generally? And if so, what does that mean for interest rates? Going forward, like are are we just should we just get used to five percent interest rates or higher, or will it revert back to the levels that we've become more accustomed to of like one percent, two percent?
2: Well, I think one of the important things to remember is that uh, inflation is inflation is the rate of change of prices. It's not the level of prices. So we're almost certainly entering a world with more fraught trade relationships, less efficient production supply chains, and more difficulty in sourcing some materials, and higher costs related to our green transition. Uh, Those higher prices uh, may not continue increasing though at a higher rate. Uh, It means that they're not necessarily coming down Uh, But, you know, as we continue to move forward and adjust, the rate of increase in prices need not stay as high as it was last year at 8% compared with the year before. Uh, We may see inflation persistently uh, a feature of our economies at around the 2% target. It's worth remembering that the 20 years leading up to the pandemic, inflation was persistently too low in Canada. You know, we undershot the target uh, for a couple decades on a consistent basis. And so moving to an era where we're just hitting the target or we're slightly above it is hardly a major apocalyptic change. Uh, I think the uh, orthodox uh, macroeconomic framework we've put into place to control inflation, align supply and demand, and uh, ensure that interest rates and price increases are reasonably predictable is beginning to reassert itself. And it's been incredibly successful over uh, a little more than three decades. The bigger challenges that we're coming back to now that we're through the pandemic's worst period, I'm never going to say that it's over as we face new variants, we're through the shutdowns and the reopening period, We are now coming back to the persistent challenges the Canadian economy faced prior to all that disruption. And the most fundamental one is uh, very slow productivity growth and very weak business investment. And those are the two biggest challenges we have to face. And those are challenges that have been with us for 20 or 30 years. And they're ones that the current Trudeau government, for instance, has pulled out An incredibly large quiver of policy measures to try to combat. And I have to sympathize with them a bit. They haven't seen much return, whether it's the super clusters, whether it's reducing uh, taxes on corporations to remain competitive with the United States uh, and maintaining one of the lowest corporate tax rates in the developed world, whether it's accelerating expensing of uh, depreciation on capital assets, which Means that you know you have a direct reduction in taxes as well related to investment, um, or you know some of the other agencies and funds devoted to growth and innovation that they have put into place. Uh, we haven't seen much bang for our buck yet, and uh, amongst academic economists, I would say we've almost come to the bottom of the traditional basket of things we would prescribe or suggest need to be implemented. Now it could be there's something in the execution that isn't quite right. There are some tweaks we could make. But my bigger suspicion is there are uh, broader factors at work that we still haven't figured out and still haven't completely addressed. And Mm. there are global things that hit what is a relatively small-ish big, small big open economy like Canada's uh, that we can't control. If the US has a trade fight with China, we get caught in the crosshairs uh, inevitably. And um, addressing those productivity and investment uh, shortfalls is the really big thing that we've got to address, I think more so than persistent inflation.
0: If we want more investment, then should we try to get rates down?
2: Is that good for business investment? Uh, well, you know, we had incredibly low rates uh, for most of the last yeah. uh, 10 years since the global financial crisis in 2008. That wasn't enough to do it it doesn't sure. mean it's wrong uh and it may be a necessary condition but it clearly isn't sufficient and we need okay. to satisfy both necessary and sufficient conditions here do you see any risks of you know let's say rates do stay at sort of
0: around the current range for the next couple of years do you see any vulnerabilities or risks in the economy that we should be paying attention to, places where things could start to to break?
2: Well, the key thing to keep in mind is that when we're thinking about economic decisions, we don't look at the nominal rate, the headline interest rate posted by the Bank of Canada or by banks on their lending, but what the real interest rate is. And the real interest rate is that nominal rate with the rate of inflation subtracted from it. Right now, we're in positive real-rate territory. The Bank of Canada has raised rates enough that we are now higher than headline inflation or underlying core inflation. So it is uh, meaningfully contractionary on the economy. Uh, The question then becomes, how long do we remain in this situation where nominal rates are much higher than uh, inflation? if inflation keeps ticking down or remains relatively stable, we should be able to bring nominal rates back down uh, to a level that is more consistent with being neither constrictive nor stimulative. And then the question comes back to, if uh, monetary policy isn't biased toward either cutting investment or growing investment, what else do we need to put into place in terms of regulatory frameworks, supporting fiscal policies, Uh, supporting education, patents, R&D support, that will actually get that investment happening here. Okay, well, Brett,
0: that was a great conversation. Thank you so much for chatting with us. I learned so much about what's going on right now. Awesome. Sarah, such a great conversation with Brett. I think so many interesting points to, to unpack there, but what are your initial thoughts?
1: My initial point is that, I mean, we've both seen the reaction immediately after the last kind of rate hike enhancement. And generally, people are are pissed off. And what was interesting to kind of remind ourselves of is that's to be expected. People don't want higher borrowing costs. And um, I think a clear takeaway from this conversation was that the Bank of Canada doesn't really want to be raising rates. Um, and they're really kind of just responding to to the situation that's in front of them, which are is really these kind of like underlying price pressures that are super important to get down. Otherwise, we're gonna feel some of the the consequences of what heightened kind of long-term inflation looks like. So I thought that was interesting and, and puts into perspective maybe where the Bank of Canada is is coming from and gives some clarity to to what people's reaction has has been, although I see Both sides of it.
0: Yeah, totally. And a couple of interesting points there. You know, I thought one thing that stood out immediately was just how much of this is a psychological exercise that the Bank of Canada and other central banks are undertaking to try and convince people that they are going to keep hiking rates no matter what, uh, even if, you know, that's not what their preferred outcome would be. Um, but, you know, it's also a tension there with some of the other global factors that uh, Brett talked about that are outside of the control of the Canadian government or the Bank of Canada or really any individual central bank that are causing inflation and that the bank needs to respond to. And I think the way that he framed that as these are things that need to be done to offset some of those things that are happening outside of our control was a a useful way of of framing it and thinking about it.
1: I like the thought experiment, the 0% inflation thought experiment, and I thought that was a yes, great way that, to answer your question.
0: Yeah, totally. That made it make a lot of a lot of sense to me. I think it'll be interesting to see if we do end up settling in at an inflation target somewhat above 2%, like based on what Brett said it sounds like that's kind of an arbitrary number that is picked for psychological reasons, I think is what he what he talked about. And so maybe you can have there, inflation at 3% and it's fine. And maybe we just settle around there.
1: There's psychological reasons, but I'm going back to the conversation that we had with Marty Weintraub where he was explaining how difficult inflation is from a labor perspective, perspective specifically when you look at how often you have to just change the price of things right. in the grocery store or in any store and it makes me think right that this 2% is almost like yes psychologically maybe it's a it's a it's a good number but you also think about at what point does inflation just get to be a real hassle when it comes to changing prices when it comes to negotiating your salary with your boss when it comes to businesses trying to you know nail down contracts that are many years in the future, right? There seems to be kind of just like an an ease to it that we've gotten used to. And and three percent, four percent would just complicate things and in ways that I I don't I don't know if I'm ready to to tackle in my day-to-day life.
0: Well I don't I mean maybe it would. I guess that's the live question that we have to answer, right? Like is it worth that trade-off of some of those issues that are caused if you accept three percent, if it means we don't have to keep raising rates and all of the problems that that causes as well. And I feel like that's kind of an active question right now that people are going to have to figure out.
1: But for now, Tiff and the team at the Bank of Canada, we're still on the road to to two percent. So let's not get right. any ideas and and right. and, and let's <laughs> have a little faith. Right. In I them, guess if you said three
0: percent, it would not be good for expectations.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So yeah, we'll see how that pans out over the next few months and and when they return to their seats after the summer and what they think of the data that. That, that they're looking over after after the summer at that point.
0: All right. Well, should we leave it there for now? I think so. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin. You can find me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin.
1: And I'm Sarah Inca. You can find me on Twitter at Sarah Inca.
0: And find more episodes of the podcast by searching Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts. And also subscribe to our daily business newsletter at readthepeak.com. Com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please go to Spotify or Apple Podcasts and leave us a positive review. It really helps us grow the show and reach more people. We'll see you next week.